Yes, turn with me in John's Gospel, John 19. We come to the end of a chapter here as well. John 19, let's stand together for the Word of God for the New Testament lesson and indeed our sermon. Verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the bo- then they took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus, because of the Jews' day, preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Amen. Thus far God's word. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as you have appointed the preaching of your word to be central in our worship, Lord, as we come to this pinnacle in our worship, when we humble ourselves to sit under the preached word, we pray, Lord, that you would bless what you would appoint, that you've appointed. Though men deem it foolish and a stumbling block, we pray, O God, that you would manifest your great power and glory, that you would take the frail vessel of a man, a sinner as we are, that you would, by your Spirit, equip him and use him, Lord, that we might hear Christ and his truth through the preaching of the word, that Christ may be all in all, and that we might be drawn together in Christ and build up in our holy religion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Crucified, dead, and buried. This passage before us this morning is but a continuation of what we took up last week. When we read verse 42, we should be drawn back to verse 31. You notice verse 42 we just heard because of the Jews' preparation day. And in verse 31, John wrote, therefore, because it was the preparation day. These two uh, service bookends of this whole unit, this whole section. And what is this section about? Jesus is dead. That's what was right before. He gave about his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus' human spirit was gone from his human body. And that's death. That's what it is for us when we die as well. He had come to the end of all that the Father had given him to do. And here we see ourselves at the crossroads in Paul's, I'll say, famous words. I think most of you are familiar with what Paul writes in Philippians 2. Paul is instructing the church. And he uses Christ as an example of what sort of mind ought to be in us. And he writes then the most Christological passage that I can think of in the New Testament. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. And he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then Paul makes that shift. 
speaking of the glory that God has bestowed upon him. And so we find ourselves at this point where Paul was at that point. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The Westminster Shorter Catechism captures the progression of the life of Christ. I remember teaching children in a Sunday school class some years ago, and we talked about how it was like steps going down, steps of humiliation that are laid out. Sword of Catechism 27 says, Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? He's listen to the answer and think about steps, children. I want you to listen and follow us. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. There he is, coming from heaven, the Son of God incarnate. And his being born, and that in a low condition. Mary and Joseph were people of no means. And he was made under the law. Here he is as the lawgiver, living under the law that he gave Moses. He lived as a man bound by the law. And undergoing the miseries of this life, he suffered many of the difficulties. And then the wrath of God. Now we find ourselves at the cross. And then the cursed death of the cross. And then being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. The progressive steps of humiliation that Christ underwent. Remember in the garden, it was the temptation of Adam that he could be as God, that he tempted Adam. You can be as God. Exalt yourself. And that's our very nature. That's why we have conflict with one another in our homes. That's why brothers and sisters fight. They want to be first. They want to exalt themselves. And yet we see Christ, who is exalted above all, the Son of God, stooped and came to heaven and stepped down in humility, humility even to the death of the cross. We confess this the first Sunday of each month when we take up the Apostles' Creed. Amongst other things, we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's He's being born. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The Nicene Creed also captures this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. It was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. It was made man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. This is critical to our creeds. This is where we find ourselves in John's Gospel. We, we, here's the, the historical record, the faithful witness of the inspired Word of God that we find showing up in our creeds and our confessions and our catechism because these things are so. And so today, let us together look. Let us walk together and look the final step of the humiliation of our blessed Redeemer. A humiliation that He endured and underwent willingly for our sakes that we might be lifted up to know our God and spend eternity with Him. We've seen how He was crucified. We've heard the record of His death. And now we shall see the account of His burial. He descended even into Hades, the grave, the place of the dead. We're going to use three main headings. The impact of Jesus' death. We'll see that in two men in particular. The disciples' love for Jesus. Those two men, how they behave. And then we'll look at the actual details of the burial 
of the body of Jesus. We begin with the impact of Jesus' death. You notice in the text we've read, John tells us of two men, a Joseph of Arimathea and a Nicodemus. Now, children, some of you might remember, oh, we heard about a Nicodemus. That's, that's where John 3.16 is at, when, when Jesus meets with Nicodemus. Yes, that's the same Nicodemus. But here's this Joseph of Arimathea. We know nothing about him. He just shows up at this point. Prior to this moment, both have lived in obscurity. These are not amongst the twelve. Both were secret disciples. John tells us that, particularly about Joseph of Arimathea, but it seems to be true also of Nicodemus, one who came to see Jesus by night, lest he be discovered. And there's no public, there's no record of their public presence with Jesus during his three years of ministry. Now we can conclude that they must at times have been present when Jesus was preaching and teaching and doing miracles. That he's not an unknown. And they, they know something of who he is. And, and we see in the text that they have a, a faith in him as we'll find as it unfolds. But we can really understand they've lived in the shadows while Jesus has ministered. They've been, in a sense, ashamed to be identified with him, fearful even, as John records, to be identified with him. As I said, we know very little about either man. We'll look just a little bit about what we know about Joseph. No previous mention of him. He's never mentioned again. However, at this point, all four gospel authors name him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the burial of Christ. And there we find Joseph of Arimathea in each town. Matthew tells us he was a rich man. Mark says he was a prominent council member. Luke says he had not consented to their decision and deed. That is, when the Sanhedrin agreed that Jesus should die. Joseph had not consented. Mark and Luke tell us that Joseph of Arimathea was literally, quote, I'm quoting, waiting, himself waiting for the kingdom of God. That's what we heard about Simeon and Anna. In the temple when Jesus was but a little child and they brought him. They were, there were those in Israel looking for the kingdom. You remember that as we have made our way through John, uh, particularly early on, that there was anticipation in Israel at the time, an expectation that Messiah was about to come. There was a heightened awareness. And indeed, we learn from Acts that there, there were other false messiahs, pretenders, who would rise up and disappear. So we know little about Joseph. Nicodemus, we met him in John in chapter 3. John tells us he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. So both of these men are men of prominence. Uh, Both appear from all the evidence of the text that they were members of the Sanhedrin, the the ruling council of Israel. We notice in John 3, Nicodemus came to meet Jesus by night. And he came in his first words to Jesus. He recognized that Jesus was a teacher sent by God. He recognized that it must be so that God was with him, that the miracles bore witness that Jesus was one sent by God. And so from these things, we must conclude, as I was saying just a moment ago, these men had to be present on some occasions. But we don't see them as disciples and following. They're never mentioned, though they must have certainly been present. They must have heard Jesus teach and preach. There must have been occasions where they've seen some of his miracles. They show up at this moment. It's not just like, oh, there's this guy on his cross. Let's do something about it. They have a history, though it's not recorded. Jesus has had some impact upon them, even though they've stayed in the shadows. Both of them, particularly at this point, give evidence that they knew Jesus was more than a mere man. 
Nicodemus testified something to that. He says that he had to be at least a man sent by God when he came to Jesus by night. But in John 38, John tells us particularly that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. He followed him, but he was secretly so. Why? Because of the Jews. You remember, children, when the man who was born blind from birth, birth, when he was healed, there was a controversy. And because he confessed that Jesus was the Christ, that his hope was in him, they put him out of the synagogue. We would say that he excommunicated him. And this was what they said, that anyone who would follow Christ or name Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, was to be put out of the church. And in that day, to be put out of the synagogue was to be say, you have no ordinary fellowship in the community of Israel. You are an outcast because their life focused on the temple and the synagogue. It was all wrapped up in that. And to be put out of that was to be almost like a giant Gentile, to be maybe worse than a Gentile. Under discipline, put out because of your belief. Nicodemus has displayed conviction and courage on another occasion. We find him, maybe you've forgotten this, but look back to John chapter 7 and verse 45. This is when the religious leaders have contested with Jesus, argued about who he was, and they sent some of their officers, some like temple soldiers, to go and arrest Jesus and bring him in, and they came back with no Jesus. And so that's just the controversy. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, No man ever spoke as this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. See, they're pretty riled up that this officer failed. They, they, They think they've fallen under some sort of spell. Indeed, what they've done is they've heard Jesus speak with authority the truth of God. Nicodemus, and John likes to put in little explanation notes. There's a parenthetical here. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Nicodemus spoke up. Nicodemus has been quiet. But this is a matter of justice, and Nicodemus speaks out. We learn something about him. Does our law judge a man before he hears him and knows what he is doing? That doesn't mean that Nicodemus has faith in Christ, but he's, he's a setting forth the principle. He's a ruler. They all as rulers should have followed the rules. They should have abided by their law. And they say, you know, our law says we don't accuse someone until there's been a trial. Where we've heard the evidence against him and there's been an opportunity for him to answer those who accuse him. And so he raises that. It's a legitimate point. It's what they all should have been compelled with, but they all, to seem to be with a whole, are against him. We'll see in a moment that not all were. A little bit later. And so then they asked him, Nicodemus, are you also from Galilee? There's scorn in their voice. There's mockery. Search and look for no prophet has ever risen out of Galilee. So we know something a little more about Nicodemus than we do Joseph of Arimathea. Things are different now. This religious body, this body of elders and religious folks, priests and Levites and so forth, they've arrested Jesus. They've convinced Pilate to crucify Jesus. He's been crucified on a Roman cross. He is dead. He's hanging on a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. 
dead. And Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, come. It's interesting. Where are, we know what's happened to Judas from other gospel accounts. He's realized the error of his ways. Instead of repenting, he's gone out and hung himself. We know that John was there. He's somewhere. And then I think this account of the burial gives us strong evidence that John's an eyewitness of these things. But the other ten, where are they at? We're told in the garden they fled. But here's Joseph. And here's Nicodemus. Something, someone has changed these two men. They come out at a time and do something that puts them right in the limelight. Remember, the crosses are right outside the gate. This is the main thoroughfare, particularly if you're going up to the temple. This is the time of the Passover. Many people have been coming and going from the temple. This is a public thoroughfare. And here are the crosses. The Romans love that because they wanted the crucified criminals to be an example. And Joseph and Nicodemus are there. How? How, how did these men go from hiding and being in secret? What has happened to them? The Holy Spirit has worked. I want to take us back where we were at last week to Zechariah 13.1. There the prophet says, In that day a fountain shall be opened. Remember how we saw that when they pierced Christ? There was a fountain of blood and water that flowed from His side. The church born for to be the bride of the Christ from the side of Christ. A fountain was opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. That's the blood and the water cleanses sin and uncleanness. Jesus has died and following that, having been pierced, this prophecy was fulfilled. And Nicodemus and Joseph are the first evidences of the fulfillment of that prophecy. They were inhabitants of Jerusalem. And that flow of grace from Jesus Christ has been applied to them by the Holy Spirit for forgiveness of sins and the cleansing from uncleanness. And so we see it's had this impact on Joseph. Particularly, we're told about Joseph, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. There's John explaining. He's giving us some background. Now what does he say? He asked Pilate. He went right to the governor. A difficult man, a contentious man. He's a ruler. He would no doubt have had experience. He would have known just how difficult Pilate is. But also, he had access to Pilate. As a ruler of the people, he had access to go. And he goes. And he puts it all on the line. And indeed, Pilate gave him permission If you look at Mark's account, he actually uses the word that tells us he asked boldly. In one of the other accounts, the word is that he begged. He was not to be turned away. He was insistent to have the body of Christ. Now, we understand from last week, typically the Romans left the bodies on the crosses to decay. Again, to be an example, a deterrent to wickedness by their standard. But in Judea, they allowed the Jews to remove and bury the bodies, and typically family members would be the one to do that. But when they were just criminals, often they were just taken down because the Jews didn't want the offense because there was a cursedness and uncleanness in that. And that was what we saw in Deuteronomy. God said, don't leave them to hang overnight. They would do that, but they often would throw those criminals into a common grave. 
One of the commentators has suggested that that common grade's always already been dug. There's an anticipation. And particularly we saw that the Jews, they're, they're concerned. They don't want these crosses. Verse 31, I mean, these people remain on the crosses because the Sabbath was the next day. It was a special Sabbath. It was part of the, the Passover festivities. And so the provision was always already made. If Joseph had not been moved by the Holy Spirit and emboldened to go, Jesus' body would have joined the other two in a mass grave and forgotten. But Joseph was determined that the body of his Savior would be buried in honor. But there was an impact on Nicodemus as well. Here is a man who, as A.W. Pink sees him, quote, is timid by nature, yet by grace overcoming. Here is Nicodemus, the only one apparently who dared to help Joseph in the holy work of burying the Lord. Somehow Nicodemus and Joseph, Joseph learns what Nicodemus, Nicodemus learns what Joseph's up to. I think it's not stretching things. I think we're drawing by good and necessary consequence. But these men had come to realize they weren't like the other assembly. You know, maybe it's because they're in the assembly and there's the, the other men shouting, crucify him. And they're not. And they look around and they notice who those are that are not. And that's what happens at Presbytery sometimes, as the elders know. Sometimes you, you hear a guy stand up and speak, and it's like, oh, I like that argument. I, I agree with him. I, I'm going to talk to him later. Happens at GA, too. These men would have recognized. They would have had some occasion to come to know that they have similar persuasions. And like Joseph, Nicodemus was willing to bear the cost of following Christ, even unto death. Because what was it that the Jews accused Jesus of? He was a rebel, and therefore he should be put to death. This was their argument. And so there was a danger for, for any associated with him to be seen as the band that followed this rebel. And that they too might be subjected to death. But Joseph and Nicodemus were willing to bear the cost of following Jesus, even unto death. John told us in chapter 12 that there were others. I told you we'd come to this. Chapter 12, John writes, Even among the rulers, many believed in him. Now remember in John's gospel, that believed in him. We've seen that. That indicates a lot of things. It's not always that they're believing in him as unto salvation. Remember in chapter 2, after the miracle of turning the water into wine, we were told that many believed in him. They believed in him as a miracle worker. They noticed something unique about him, and that's the degree. And that seems to be the case of John's writing here. But nonetheless, we don't want to discount it. These men, many of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him similar to Joseph, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now that's a fault. That's man, fear of man, which we must not have. We must delight in God. We must fear God. Jesus even said, don't fear man who can destroy the body. Fear rather the one who can destroy the body and soul in hell. And of course that would be God. Well, before we go on, let's just make some application. We have looked in this 19th chapter, John, at Christ and him crucified. The only hope of glory. We have just considered the impact that Jesus' death had on these two men who had been living in the shadows. 
seeing the crucified Christ dead resulted in boldness for them. Boldness that they would then live for him. The death of Christ has had the impact that it has on believers. They're prepared to live for him. I ask you, have you looked on him whom they have pierced? So the text from the Old Testament said, verse 37, Look, uh, they shall say, they shall look on him whom they pierce. Have you looked on him whom they have pierced? What is the impact of Jesus' life, uh, death on your life? Is your life different? Do you live differently because Christ died for you as a sinner? Has the reality of the crucified Christ shaped how you now live? Have you been quickened to step forward and profess Christ? Are you ready to profess Christ, to, to, to speak for the gospel in public settings, uh, uh, maybe when a family gathering? That is a tough place to do it. But I tell you what, Nicodemus and Joseph were an incredibly tough place. Have you spoken up in the workplace? Have you defended Christ? Or do you link in the sh- lurk in the shadows? Remember the words... Of Jesus that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. When we come to stand before the Father in heaven, we need Christ as our advocate. We need him to speak on our behalf. Father, forgive this one. Father, I have shed my blood to cleanse this one. I have redeemed this one. We need Christ to speak for us. But he's called on us to speak forth from him. Joseph and Nicodemus, they're they're not speaking, are they? They're not standing at the foot of the cross saying, Yo, you who passed by, here is the King of the Jews. Here is the Savior. No. They're ministering and caring for him. Their actions are speaking. And that's often the way we speak in the workplace and amongst our family members. And then when challenged or when asked, we're ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. If Jesus has saved you from sin, death, and the grave, do not fear men. There's nothing man can do to you. You're secure in Christ for all eternity. Remember the boldness of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah when Nebuchadnezzar said, you bow or you're going in the furnace. And said, know this, O king, our God is able to deliver us from your hand. And he will deliver us. Whether through the fire or in the fire, he will deliver us. And on that occasion, God delivered them in the fire and then out of the fire. It was a great testimony. Let us not fear man. Let the flow of grace from Jesus' side wash you, cleanse you, and embolden you. And let that work of his grace be evident in your life before all. Well, secondly, we want to look at the disciples' love for Jesus. Certainly, we're already seeing that. Let's look at it a little more thoroughly. Here are two men freshly transformed by grace transformed by the work that Christ has accomplished on the cross. Am I saying that when Jesus died, then they had saving faith? We don't know. You know the, word, the Lord's been working. The Spirit's been working in them. There's been evidence. They've been secret disciples. But that moment has transformed them. There's a boldness in them now. Look at verse 37. 
I'm sorry, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Christ, and in verse 39, and Nicodemus, who at first came to him, Jesus, by night, also came. Here are two sinners who have been transformed. They step forward. Nicodemus and Joseph, they look, they look with the eye of flesh upon Jesus, and now they look at him with the eye of faith. And what do they see? Here's Christ crucified. He's dead. Marred, disfigured. And yet what do they see with the eye of faith? They see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who can take away their sin. This is the Passover week. This is fulfillment of the Passover. Here is the Lamb that was pointed to by all those lambs down through the course of the history, even since Egypt. And here these two sinners have received the benefit of the flow of grace from Jesus' side. Here are two who mourned and yet were motivated. No more living in secret. Now they were in the open, hovering over the crucified one at the foot of the cross. And all who passed by in and out of the city would see them as they took down the central figure of Golgotha and cared for him. As we said before, both of them much had much to lose by coming forward as they came to care for the lifeless body of Jesus on that Roman cross. The ten remaining disciples of the eleven were hiding. But these two men were not ashamed of Jesus or his cross. For for them, as Paul writes, for them it had become the power of God unto salvation. Their salvation. God had raised them in the newness of life. And that life was evident in their love for the Redeemer. Their love for their Savior moved them to action. It made them willing to expose themselves to the eyes of others. Uh, even the hating Jews, their fellow Sanhedrin members, who if any of them went by, they would have known exactly who these men were. And they would have been quick to scurry back into town as little tattletales to talk to the chief priests and the other Sanhedrin members. But they counted that all loss for the sake of serving Christ. They were willing to work to honor Christ, even his death. They were willing to spend out of the resources that God had given them, willing to spend and to be spent to honor Christ. We're told Nicodemus came with a large measure, a hundred pounds, a mixture of myrrh and aloes to be used in the preparation of the body of Christ. Such love for Christ moves us to action. The love of Christ compels us to keep the law of God, not because we're seeking to tick off boxes that God will accept us, but because God has accepted us in Christ, because Christ's blood has washed us from our sin, because we're born from above in Christ. Then we love Him. That's what we confess when we take up Heidelberg number 2 in that third part. How should we live? We live keeping the law because of so great love for God. And it motivates us in all our doing. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Is your love for Christ moving you to action? Jesus warned his disciples not to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break up and steal. But rather that we should lay up treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves do not break into steal. And who is the treasure in heaven? It's Christ. 
We live now for Him. And that is our focus. It's an eternal focus. It's, it's looking in this day toward that day, as Luther said. And we live this day in light of that day. That we live, love, and obey this day in light of the love that we have been shown by Christ and the work that He's done in our lives. And here we see two men who love Christ. They spend it all. They put it all on the line for Christ. And so... Christ is in heaven. Let our hearts be fixed there as well. Let our affections be on him who is above and not on the things of this world. They should be growing dim. Their value should be less and less. We should be willing to let them go as we sing. And kindreds also. Let us live lives to the glory of God because of love for him who saved us. Thirdly, we look at the specifics of the burial of the body of Jesus. And if the normal order of things had been left unfold, as I mentioned, Jesus' body would have been cast into a common grave by the Jews. that They didn't want the offense of these bodies hanging on into the Sabbath. They would have taken him down and probably literally thrown him into a common grave with the other criminals. How much more so when, what was it they charged him with? The, the, the crime of sedition, rebellion against the government. Surely that is a crime. I mean, everything indeed has been done to shame and to humiliate these men. And the very fact that Pilate gave Jesus' body, this is interesting, think about it. Pilate, I mean, Joseph came to Pilate seeking the body of Christ. The charge was that he was a rebel, a rabble-riser, that he was guilty of treason, that he should die. And if Pilate was consistent with how they usually treated such men, he would have said, no, he'll be cast with the other criminals. But Pilate heard the beggings and the pleadings of Joseph, and he gave him the body. You remember when we were going through the trial, what did we see? Pilate says, I find no fault in him. Pilate was troubled there was evidence that this man was extraordinary, that he wasn't a usual man. He found no fault in him. He declared that over and over. His wife had warned him, had nothing to do with this righteous man. And Pilate tried to outmaneuver the religious leaders at that moment that Jesus should be set free. He, he beat him, hoping that that would be enough, that they would say, okay, we're satisfied. But no, they wanted his death. And so even in his crucifixion, Pilate put the sign over him, the King of the Jews. I think we see here that Pilate gave Joseph the body of Jesus is more evident. Pilate's conscience is troubled. This is no mere man. This is some story. I'm not suggesting at all that Pilate had faith. What Pilate did was wicked. He, he condemned an innocent man to death. More than that, he condemned the Son of God come in the flesh to death. But even in this moment, we see God at work. I've said it to you before, I'll say it to you again. God is above it all, in it all, and through it all. He works through means. Joseph is most motivated to go. Pilate is troubled. And so he grants Joseph the body of Christ. And so Jesus' body was given to a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb, thus fulfilling the scriptures. Back in Isaiah 53, that immemorial passage Immortal passage of the suffering servant. Verse 9, we're told they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death 
because he had done no violence. There was any deceit in his mouth. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that Jehovah's servant would be buried in a rich man's tomb. There would be honor yet afforded to him. Have you ever stopped to think what Nicodemus and Joseph undertook as that dark day was drawing to a close? I'm thinking about the physical work of it. There are four soldiers. There was a squad of Roman soldiers that, that did the work of nailing these men and hoisting the cross and getting it set in the ground. Four men, because this was hard work, uh, uh, lifting a, a, a man's body, and then the weight of the cross was substantial. But it's Joseph and Nicodemus, two men, that must get him down. I, I'm, I'm assuming that they up into the cross out of the ground, as in the same manner that was put into the ground, and they lay it down, but then they take and remove the body of Christ from the cross. A human body is heavy, and even more so when it's dead. I've never hefted a human body, but I had to heft my father with my son helping when he was just totally incapacitated. That's hard work. And here's a lifeless body of full-grown adult men Dead weight. They took him off the cross. They carried him to the garden. And they prepared him and laid him in the tomb. This was accomplished by men with heavy hearts. No doubt, thousands of questions racing through their mind. Remember things that Jesus had preached. Wondering about a host of things. Not understanding all, but their love for Christ compelled them to show honor to his body in death. And so they took him and laid him down. Verse 39 tells us that Nicodemus had brought this mixture of myrrh and aloes. Remember, the Israelites had been in captivity in Egypt. And the Egyptians embalmed bodies. And part of that process meant that they took out the organs and put them in a separate vessel and then embalmed the body with various uh, spices and so forth. The Jews did not do that. The, 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 the Egyptians used something more like a, a paste or a resin of these herbs and fragrant um, products. The Jews uh, mixed it and ground it into a powder. And then as they would wrap the body, they would mix the powders with the wrapping. We see that Jesus then... Verse 4, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen and with spices. So you get this idea of as they're going, they're putting the spices into the strips. And as John says, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. This was their general practice. This is how um, Lazarus would have been buried away. And remember when he comes out, Jesus said, loose him. He's, he's bound up even as he comes out of the grave. And so they were preparing the body of Christ we're told that in Christ's birth, coming to a meager home with living beings, he did not, he was not wrapped in, in a royal garment, but wraps in strips of cloth, foretelling his burial when he'd be wrapped in strips of linen cloth. He was presented as a young child, about two years old, with fine gifts fit for a king. And amongst those were the very herbs and ointments that were used for a body being prepared for death. John tells us, verse 41, it was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. 
this grave has never been desecrated by a dead body. Dead bodies made something unclean. This is a dead body. But it's, notice he says it's in which no one had ever been laid. John draws attention to this port in detail. Because on Sunday morning, there weren't one, two or three or four bodies in that grave. There was one. And so when the tomb was empty, there could only be one that came out of that grave. Again, John's writing late. And there are people who've floated all kinds of wild ideas, conspiracies about what really happened. But John's giving the detail. John was an eyewitness. John saw these things. What comment about the garden? Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Isn't that remarkable? Think of the contrast. Here's the place of the skull. It's where the Romans erect these crosses, put criminals to death, and right near that place was a garden. And the word that's used in the original language, it's not like somebody just planted a few flowers. This tomb is set in an area, uh, the word it could have been an orchard or a vineyard. This was a substantial place which would help us to understand that when Mary comes to the garden on Sunday morning, she meets this man and she assumes he's what? The gardener. So it tells us something more about this place. Think of the contrast, though. Right next to the place where life's in, there's a place where life is growing. Is that not a picture of what Christ has accomplished? In his death, he gives life. What a glorious picture, even as such a simple thing as that, foreshadowing the fullness of what Christ's death would accomplish. Once dead sinners are made alive unto God in salvation. Now, here's something that may surprise you. There is no biblical text that tells us the tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. I bet you believe that, didn't you? There's no biblical text that tells us that. There's some apocryphal writings that tell us that. But I would say to you, I wouldn't cast off that idea because good and necessary consequence suggests that. Joseph was a rich man. He's a man who could have arranged to have a tomb hewn out of the rock for himself or his family. And there's no evidence. Joseph didn't get Permission. He's, he's not violating somebody else's property. He's an honorable man. He would not do that. So everything in that suggests very powerfully that the tomb did belong to Joseph. But there's nothing in the scripture that tells us so. We just conclude that that's most likely. So as we look at the remarkable detail in, Joseph, in John's account, why is it so much detail? Well, it bears witness he was present, as I've said, an eyewitness of what took place. He, he watched these men. Perhaps he even helped them. We're not told that he did. Again, John doesn't draw attention to himself. So if indeed he lended a hand, he's not going to celebrate that. But nonetheless, he was there. But secondly, and connected with a previous passage, here we have proof that Jesus was truly dead. Here are two respectable, honorable men. They're handling the dead body of Christ. There was no fainting or swooning. This man was dead when he was buried. And indeed, Jesus has descended each step of humiliation all the way to the grave. And as we confess, he descended into Hades. He was placed in the place of the dead so that we who were dead in the trespasses of sin might be raised to newness of life. One final thing to take note of. The text says that... 
they took, there's a little language, they took the body of Jesus, and it says, they, there they laid Jesus. Calling the body of Jesus, Jesus speaks of the inseparable union between the divine nature and the human nature, the hypostatic union. That's the big fancy word theologians use, this inseparable unit. When Jesus' humanity died, this divine Son of God did not abandon the human body that was now his. He took it to himself in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he has kept it even in the grave. He will be raised in that self-same body. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father in that same human body, and even now he is seated on high, ruling and reigning in that same body. The body that was laid to rest was the human body of the divine Son of God. Remarkable. As the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There Jesus lay in the grave. He descended into Hades so that from the grave he would deliver us forevermore. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Sinner, here's a Savior unlike any other. There is no other Redeemer for sinners. There is no one else in all of history who has done what is necessary so that we as sinners could escape the wrath of God, the curse for sin, the death of the grave, and the punishment of God in hell forever. Christ alone has accomplished it. It's just for this reason that God sent His only begotten Son into the world to save sinners, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus not only lived a life under the curse for sin, he suffered a curse death so that the righteousness of God would be satisfied. Jesus died so that you might live. I'm going to close with a quote from Matthew Henry. Many of you have read him and just the sweetness about what he says. Quoting now, Thus without pomp, or solemnity is the body of Jesus laid in the cold, silent grave. He lies, here lies our surety under arrest for our debts. So that if he be released, his discharge will be ours. Here is the Son, S-U-N, here is the Son of Righteousness set for a while to rise again to greater glory and set no more. Here lies a seeming captive to death but a real conqueror of death. For here lies death itself slain and the grave conquered. Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we marvel. Indeed, your ways are not our ways. They're beyond finding out. Father, there is no mere man in all the span of history, even the wisest of ones, Solomon could never have conceived of so great a salvation, a perfect plan of salvation that satisfied your justice, paid the penalty for our sin, and brought worthless sinners home to God. Father, we marvel at the work of Christ. Blessed Jesus, we thank you that you suffered the consternation of sin, that you underwent all the humiliations 
so that we might live. We thank you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.